This call right. is now being recorded. All right, Tim, can you yeah. still hear me? Yes. Right, I, uh, so. I can hear you, and just never had a Google call before. I've never been involved, so this is new technology for me. Yes, it is new for me as well. <laughs> uh, thank you for working with me. Uh, yes, so to answer your previous question before we started recording, uh, I actually just host a podcast for fun, which I started during the quarantine. Uh, so I am an avid reader. I read about over 55 books a year. And so mm-hmm. one of your books, uh, the, the Trigger, Hunting the Assassin Who Brought the World to War, is actually the most recent book I completed reading, and I decided to rate it on Goodreads, and that's how we connected, and that's how we met. So I'm, I'm very happy that you're here and interviewing with me and uh, speaking with me, because I have a few questions, and I thank you again for being uh, my first guest on this podcast. Not at all, my entirely uh, my pleasure, and it's delighted to hear that, as an author, it's delightful to hear that there are readers out there so motivated that they are prepared to not just read a book, but then to follow up and uh, set up podcasts and come up with questions. So how can I help you? What are your questions? Uh, yes. So uh, let's just uh, let's get started. I just wanted to tell you a little bit and tell my readers, of course, a little bit about you. Uh, so uh, like I said, today's uh, guest is uh, Tim Butcher, and uh, he has wrote this book in uh, 2014, I believe. And uh, this is a little bit in your bio here that I have. Uh, you were on the staff of the Daily Telegraph from 1990 to 2009, serving as a chief war correspondent and Africa Bureau Chief and Middle East Correspondent. You're also, uh, your first book, I'm sorry, The Blood River, was a number one bestseller in the UK and was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize. And you currently reside in Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, so that's, that's all correct information so far. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so my first question for you is, uh, in this book you were talking about how you were inspired by your time as a war correspondent in Bosnia in the 1990s, and I just wanted to know a little bit about your background. What other nations did you visit while you were working for the Daily Telegraph? Well, it's a long list. Uh, I mean, if I, if I listed, listed it, it would be like a long catalog, but um, uh, as a war correspondent in the 1990s, and at 20 years, I basically went to everywhere which was pretty bumpy in Africa, uh, in the Middle East, uh, and in South Asia, with the occasional sort of journey to trips to more, uh, how does one say, uh, uh, settled countries like um, the United States, for example, uh, Canada, um, uh, Chile, Argentina. But basically, anywhere in, the Cong- in, anywhere in Africa that, you know, you wouldn't really naturally head, so Liberia under Charles Taylor, Sierra Leone, when the War was on Democratic Republic of Congo, Ivory Coast when the war was struggling there, Somalia, Sudan, Uganda when there was an Ebola outbreak, Kenya, uh, Rwanda, Burundi, and I lived down in, I lived many years in South Africa, so that gets me very close to countries like Zimbabwe next door, smaller countries like Lesotho, Swaziland, Botswana, Namibia. As I say, it's a bit of a catalogue, so I'm well travelled, <laughs> but as a foreign correspondent, that doesn't necessarily mean a great deal because, you know, we fly in and we fly out again. Um, you know, we go in for short, intense periods. And so that, that's my background as a, as a foreign correspondent, that it's very satisfying to get involved in these, in these sort of short, um, as it were, um, when the visits, when the, kind of, when the flames are burning, when the thing is actually on fire. But sometimes you want to learn a bit more about why the place might be on fire, why the thing is set to go off. 
And that's what drew me to Bosnia and drew me back to Bosnia, because I'd been there, as you quite rightly said, during that time in the 1990s when it was in our headlines and in the newspapers. Um, and I'd kind of fallen for it there in a rather dark way because it's such a challenging place. And um, the trigger, in as much as anything, is a catharsis. It's me going back to a place which was troubled by war. I was going back at a time of peace, but to kind of pick off a scab, which frankly is the most important historical scab for all of us because it's the, the moment where the First World War is triggered. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's all very fascinating. And I thank you for explaining all of the uh, countries that you visited. And uh, yes, I imagine that could be uh, quite dangerous. Did you feel while you were in Bosnia that uh, you were under threat at any particular time while you were there as a war correspondent? Uh, yes. Uh, if you're in a war zone, you're not kind of not yeah. doing your job if you're not getting into, into scrapes. Uh, I say that um, not trying to sound in any way... Um, courageous i just it's just a realistic thing you're going into a place where you know other people are flooding out refugees are leaving uh companies are leaving uh, planes are no longer flying uh diplomats are pulling out you're going against that flow of traffic but that's what a war correspondent does so yes there, there is risk um and you try and reduce it you try and mitigate it and I work for a newspaper. And a newspaper, I'm in a privileged position, but I don't actually have to go out and photograph when the bullets are flying. I don't have to film when the mortar shells are landing. And that is a very good thing, because you do not want to be outside when the mortars are landing and the bullets are flying. Um, there were moments, of course, uh, terrifying moments, but, but I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a well-adjusted coward. I hide under the bed if there's anything you know, nasty going on. Uh, but, you know, it's a calculated risk. And if you are a war comment, you learn how to calculate that risk and assess and see what is the time that might be the safest to cross this front line. And normally it's three o'clock in the morning because everyone's asleep or drunk. Um, you know, and that's that's when you cross the front line. You don't do it in the middle of the day when there's daylight. You can be seen. Uh, so, you know, you kind of work out some some good practices, uh, what might be called pompously trade craft. But really, it's a case of just going there and having common sense. Yes, uh, that, that definitely sounds like a very interesting, and definitely I think our viewers will appreciate that. Uh, so when you were there, in uh, when you were writing this book, The Trigger, uh, did you sense that there were still tensions? I mean, it was obviously uh, some time since the war in the 1990s, but you said it was you know relatively peaceful while you were there. Did you did you feel like that there were still tensions amongst the groups, like between the Muslims and the, the Serbs and the Croats? Yeah, it's, should we have a little bit of a background here just to remind our, your readers or your, so your viewers and your, um, your listeners that, you know, Bosnia is a very small piece of land, but it is kind of split in a number of ways and the people who live there pull it in different directions. And the three dominant groups, as you quite rightly say, are the Bosnian Serbs, who were very dominant and powerful in the 1990s. Then there's the Bosnian Muslims, also known as the Bosniaks. And then there's a community called the Bosnian Croats. So that it's all a division of faith. The only difference, these people are exactly the same. They Literally, their chromosomes are the same. Their genome um, study shows that they're all exactly the same people. But the difference is faith. And, of course, faith is a great driver. And um, and these three religions had, had created antagonisms and frictions. And the 1990s war that I was involved in covering was about settling who was the top dog 
amongst those three, if that makes sense. And that was a very active war, a very nasty war, over 100,000 dead, nasty incidents. Srebrenica is a name that might stick in people's minds, or the, the siege of Sarajevo, the city itself. Very unpleasant to think that in modern-day Europe, you could have a city literally shelled day after day after day, besieged like a sort of almost a medieval medieval siege. So that was a very strange thing in the 1990s, and I was there covering it. And then, as I said earlier, you know, you get troubled, you get upset, you get, I mean, most, most of my friends who covered it are still traumatized by things they saw and um, uh, positions they found themselves in, terrible survivor guilt when people died around you that you walk away from and you, you, you carry on living and they, you feel troubled. Um, I go back more than, you know, almost 20 years later. And the reason I go back is because that exact same space where these three groups had fought so bitterly in the 1990s was the space where the moment took place that triggers the First World War, where the gunman, Gavrilo Princip, you might remember from your history classes, on a street corner takes out a gun and shoots dead Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Then, the heir apparent, the most senior person in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, second only to the emperor himself. So this is like taking out the top dog. And the guy who did it was a nobody. a 19-year-old kid, just almost a sort of failed schoolboy, hadn't even got into university. 19, malnourished, thin, dirty, poor, dirt poor. But he changes history. He does it in this same place that was so important for me in the 1990s. Um, now, when I was there 20 years later, what was left of that friction, of that tension, of that thing that had driven the war from the 1990s? Well, the sad truth was, even though peace had been signed, it was signed in that Midwest city, Dayton, Dayton, Ohio, in the United States. The name Dayton is forever attached to Bosnia because that's where they, the diplomats drew together these three groups, the political leaders of the three groups, and basically hit them over the head and said, you are not leaving Dayton, Ohio until you sign a deal. And so the Bosnian Serbs, the Bosnian Croats, and the Muslims signed the Dayton deal. So the deal brings peace. But does it deal with the tension and the friction? And the bottom line is, no, it doesn't. There's resentment. There's antagonism. There's like a festering wound. There is not gunfire. There's not shelling. There's none of the military stuff. But yes, there is still the friction. And that's, in a way, what I was you know, exploring, because Gavrilo Princip, this assassin from 1914, how is he caught up in all this? Where, where does the friction, what, you know, what group did he belong to? And, and did the same forces apply to him? And if they weren't applying to him, what other forces did? And how, how did this boy on a street corner change the world? So, yes, there was friction. There was tension. I was walking through minefields often, you know, remnants of the war, which was, you know, that's, that's enough to get your heart rate up. Believe you me, when you're when you're, when you're in a minefield, but you'll have read in the book that I did come across some extraordinary fishermen, some fly fishermen who were casually fishing in a minefield because their view was that the fishing was more interesting than stepping on the mines. They were happy to, to deal with that risk. So there were a few risks, but really it's more about the historical context of this amazing piece of real estate that burnt so brightly in the 1990s and yet had burnt very, very brightly, like a sort of flash of magnesium in 1914, because that was the fuse that triggers the First World War. So that's my interest. That was my connection. And there were tensions. I'm, I'm, you know, I can't deny them. Frictions, underlying charges, like a sort of electrical current. And that was one of the reasons I went to explore. That's, that's all very fascinating. Thank you again for explaining that.
so when do you think that most people identify this assassin as a, a hero, a villain, or somewhere in between? Well, that's a very good question. He was a 19-year-old boy who shot two bullets. He killed two people. He killed the Archduke. That's the number two in this entire massive empire. And he killed the Archduke's wife. He just got two shots off. So he's a, he's a murderer. He's definitely a murderer. He's definitely an assassin. Is he a terrorist? Now, a terrorist is someone, in my view, who uses um, uh, unaccountable acts of violence uh, against innocent people to create terror, to create fear. And that might be a bomb going off in Northern Ireland in the 1980s. It might be a bomb going off in Oklahoma City, or it might be, you know, the Twin Towers of 9-11, or it might be an act in uh, downtown Jerusalem committed by, by Hamas. It's to, it's, to, it's to create terror among innocent people. And I don't see him as a terrorist as a result. I see him as a freedom fighter. He's not my freedom. I don't like his freedom. I don't respect his freedom. But I see him as a freedom fighter in exactly the same vein as Nelson Mandela was. Now, Nelson Mandela is a saint today. History has bestowed sainthood on him. But remember what Nelson Mandela did before he was arrested. He did take up arms. He used guns. He was the commander of, um, he was one of the founders and founding commanders of Unconte Wesizwe, which was the freedom fighting military wing, the, the fighters of the African National Congress. And he encouraged young people to take up guns and to shoot people, to let off bombs, to blow up pylons, to target people. And that, they know, that puts him pretty much close to what Gavrilo Princip, this assassin, was. And then you can you can run through history. You can there are some um, you know, freedom fighters, uh, I don't know, yeah, Zionist freedom fighters in the 1930s in Israel fighting against British occupation of Palestine. They killed deliberately killed British occupiers who were there under the League of Nations mandate to create terror to to try and dissuade the British government from being there. So you know you can you know I see him belonging to that. I certainly don't see him as a hero, but I don't see him as a terrorist in the uh, context of um, you know, killing innocent people, because he had a political motive. We might go on to discuss that if you wish. Yes. Uh, well, why don't we pause for a brief second about that, and let me ask you a little bit about your travels, like when you were there most recently. Uh, did you try any of the food and coffee there? How did you enjoy it? Was there a particular uh, food or beverage that you enjoyed? <laughs> well, Bosnia is a small piece of real estate, but it is rich. It's absolutely culturally rich um, in food, in drink, in dance, in architecture, in writing, in literature, in poetry, in music. It's, it's an amazingly beautiful European mosaic like a good mosaic it's made up of lots of different fragments and so one of the fragments influences is turkey turkish so there's a lot of turkish influence and the food's absolutely fabulous but it's, you can see strong turkish and greek influences in um in bosnia and uh, there's a wonderful uh, minced meatball dish they serve called tribaptici which is served in a pita bread an open pita bread with a a raw onion garnish, which you can literally get from one side of Bosnia to the other. And every town says, ah, oh, we make the best chivapcici in Bosnia. No, we do, says the next town. No, oh, they're rubbish. Um, uh, there's another very beautiful Turkish-originated pastry, a cheese pastry called the burek, 
which is, is, is fabulous. You mentioned the coffee. Of course, Turkish, the Turks brought coffee to the region as they brought coffee to Western Europe. I mean, it was the Turks who brought coffee to Vienna, and that's where there's a Vienna coffee culture. Um, and in Bosnia, the three communities, the Bosnian Serbs say their coffee is best, and the Bosnian Muslims say theirs is, and the Croats say theirs is. Truth be told, it's very, very similar to an understanding palate like mine. It's very strong. It's served like an, almost like an espresso. It's ground, you know, fresh, fresh, fresh. You have to have the, you see the beans before they're ground in front of you, and then it's put into water, and the water is brought to the boil. And it's that Turkish method of, of steeping the coffee flavor into the water and then letting the dust particles um, settle. So when you drink your cup, you've got to be slightly careful because that tiny last drag could be like chewing you know, tobacco grinds. It's really, really thick at the bottom. Um, yeah, it's beautiful food. And what was amazing for me in this trip was just how beautiful the landscape is. It is such an amazingly pretty place. A place, you know, during a war, as a war correspondent, you're not there to take photographs. You're not there to enjoy the view. And you didn't really get to enjoy the view. But you know, I was walking. I walked from one side of the country, frankly, to the other. And it was it was stunning. It's like going from covering all the different sort of environments of Europe, of a rocky, sandy hinterland you might approve. You might associate with the Mediterranean of Spain or Portugal. It's a really rocky dry and arid and then you cross into thick forested valleys that you might associate with Poland or Germany or the Black Forest and then open rivers beautiful rivers, rivers with ice cold water which have funny blue colour to it, called uh, there's a river called the Noreto which is famously blue it looks almost glacial, it's not, it's not fed by a glacier and then you have uh, another view, I mean, more mountains on the border with, um, with uh, Serbia proper um, absolutely stunning mountains, mountains where there's true wilderness. And, and I did see a very good indicator of wilderness, uh, which is a, yeah. Um, yeah, I saw a wolf there in Central Europe, and it was quite cool to think that there in Europe, so busy, so crowded, wolves still can survive. It's wild enough for a wolf to live. And I came across a wolf in one of my one of my walks. Yeah, didn't they even say, like, uh, we're, uh, if I remember correctly in the book, they, there was even a mention of, oh, you don't need to worry about the wolves so much, it's the bears that you have to look out for. <laughs> yeah, true enough. True enough. Uh, you don't want to get between a bear and a bear cub, as we all know. Uh, we've all watched our movies, and we, 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 we're aware of that. Um, I went to a place where there was a bear hunting lodge, which was used by the Yugoslav dictator Tito, who many of your... Listeners, viewers will remember Tito ran the country from the end of the Second World War as a sort of communist, but a very gentle communist. He was like the most acceptable face of communism. He was very close to, to Britain, to the United States, um, and he was and he fell out with, with Stalin in, 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 in Moscow, and, and Yugoslavia was forced out of the Warsaw Pact. Um, so uh, he was into hunting, and I passed a hunting lodge and met this old hunter who guided Tito, and he described how Tito used to was a genuine hunter. I mean, I would go out into the woods and walk for, for hours and half a day and three days to try and find a, a bear to, 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 to shoot as a target. But he, he described as hunter did, um, the guide I was talking to, he said, yeah, but Tito, he had all these world leaders, of course, and uh, some of them were good hunters, but some of them were awful. For example, that madman, Gaddafi, Wama Gaddafi, he came here and he was just, oh, he was awful. He wanted the bear sort of dragged out in front of him on a chain so he could shoot it and pretend he was he was a hunter. So he had nothing good to say about Muhammad Gaddafi. Um, and that reminded you again of, you know, the real politique that this piece of real estate, Bosnia, so distant, so small, so seemingly trivial, at a time it was really important. When 
a communist country decided to turn its back on Moscow, Yugoslavia suddenly becomes, oh, very flavor of the month. Suddenly all the, you know, CIA and MI6 are crawling all over it because they can see that as a weak link during the Cold War. And, um, and that adds to this sense of luster when you're exploring a place because the history the history there, it's like layers. You peel one back and there's another one. And there's one back and another. And Gavrilo Princip took his place there. But I mean, even can I connect Bosnia, this funny piece of real estate in Europe, can I connect it to 9-11? Three of the hijackers of 9-11, the terrorists of 9-11, had been to Bosnia and trained. That's how they learned to be jihadists. So uh, that was in the 1990s. One of the after effects of the, of the war was that jihadism um, had a huge boost in Bosnia because the Bosnian Muslims were able to attract these extremist jihadists. Yes, yeah, no, that that is very surprising to me. That's not something that I knew before reading this book. So I was I was very interested in learning all about all that. Um, okay, so another question I have for you was um, you mentioned I think towards the end of the book about how uh, you know there was just a, a lot of coincidences like with Armistice Day. Um, and also you mentioned, uh, you know, like it, it just seems that history worked in mysterious ways. Um, for our viewers who don't know, um, the Archduke was assassinated during a part when uh, he was supposed to be taking a, a tour of the city. And then he wanted to be directed to a hospital to visit uh, a, a, a convoy where there was injured that was injured by this group that was responsible um, so we can get into that a little bit, but um, I just wanted to know what you think would have happened in history if the Archduke wasn't assassinated, because that's such a pivotal moment. You ask one of the great counterfactuals, the counterfactual questions of history as well. You know, it, it happened this way, but you know, surely it would have happened another way. And I, my answer to that is, um, I don't think so. I really don't. I mean. The First World War is triggered by a boy on a street corner with a gun. Um, historical events need two sets of things to happen. They need um, you know, an event to happen, but it also they need to have the background conditions to be ripe. And they need to those two things have to come together for there to be historical impact. And I say that because, for example, during the Cold War, the conditions were right. Let's be honest for absolute meltdown, for the world to go mad, for the world to blow itself to pieces. The conditions were right. They had both, you know, in Washington and in Moscow, you had a certain hawkish attitude, which was, we settle this. We've got the tools. We're going to settle this. So the conditions are right. But there was never the spark. There was never the actual individual moment. Similarly, in about 1908, there was a row in Europe, which had... Um, which was a trigger. I mean, there was a big row. There's a row, can you believe, in Agadir in Morocco. And there was a coastal, um, it was a coastal city and there was a naval row. And it was the sort of triggering moment that just like the assassination in 1914, that could have sparked it. But the truth was the conditions weren't quite right then in 1908. The empires weren't quite primed to go and attack each other. The empires being the German Empire, the British Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the French nation-state, the Russians, the Russian Empire. So the conditions, the trigger went off in 1908, but the conditions weren't right. 
in the Cold War, the conditions were all right, but there was never quite a trigger, never quite the spark. But in 1914, on Sunday, June the 28th, both things came together. You had a spark, you had an assassin who killed someone, you killed someone important, and you had rivals. You had rival empires ready to go at each other. And I'm not 100% sure that the First World War would have happened in the way that it played out. It was, it was inexorable. It was going to happen. It was definite. I don't buy that, and I, I, I simply don't. And that's which is why Gavrilo Princip, this 19-year-old with a gun, is a really important person. And understanding his motives and understanding the forces that were at play with him is important. And you put your finger on something very important as well. You mentioned about accidents. You mentioned about you know, fate. That, you know, there was an accidental turn of a car. Princip, you know, the Archduke should not have been in front of him. There was a mistake because, as you quite rightly said, the itinerary of their journey through the city was changed. And suddenly there was a, an error. And there's some other factors that, that, that came to play. And, and really, the way I've, you know, after years of looking at it and then studying, desperate, we all try to rationalize. We all try to gather data, don't we? And say we, we want to explain something scientifically. We want to explain something logically with cause and effect. That's how we work. We're humans, right? We want to understand. But sometimes you've got to just kind of roll your eyes and go, well, actually, there might be some other element here. You know, what does an assassin really need? He doesn't need training or guns or the best gunpowder. or the Yes, he just needs one thing, luck. And I'm afraid to say that Gabriel Prince, that assassin that day, had the devil's luck. I mean, it was just extraordinary um, a series of events that saw him standing there, able to pull off this this desperate act. He'd got two two bullets away. I mean, one bullet he aimed at Archduke and he killed him with it, with a nine millimeter from five or six meters away. That's a hell of a shot. I mean, that's a really rare thing. And yet there was just fate in, because he happened to hit him in a place on the clothing where the clothing was thick and it hit the blood flow and the, no one saw the blood flowing and 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 and, 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 and various other factors, which makes it to me so powerful and so haunting, because frankly, the First World War, we all know the icons. We know the mud and the blood. We know the trenches. We've heard those stories. Our toes have been curled. We know how painful it was for the nations involved how these modern states ended up fighting in the mud of Flanders or in the Eastern Front in the most most medieval way, the industrial death, the industrial scale of it all. We know all of that, but what's so interesting is scroll back to the actual original sin, the actual moment where it's triggered. And that's why Principe is so fascinating, because luck is involved, the luck of the devil, fate is involved, and also manipulation, political manipulation, who accused who of what, who was Prince, what, what was he doing, and how the powers used him and shaped him and shaped his narrative. He's like a shapeshifter, really. And that makes him a very modern um, character, even though he belongs to history. Yes, absolutely. And uh, let's talk a little bit now about his motivations. What do you think inspired him to commit this action? He was a colonial subject, by which I mean he lived in a place which was colonized by a foreign power. They didn't like that. We know history tells us that people who are colonized by outsiders don't like that. Um, for example, the 13 states of America rose up against the British colonial power in the Revolutionary War. It's a well-known thing. You, you just have had enough. You try negotiation. You try to persuade. You try to be treated properly. And in the end, you end up taking up um, guns. 
And that happens all over. The, it's happened all over the world. The Irish fighting against the British for a free Ireland. Independence movements in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, independence movements in, in Africa. So he belongs to that. Princip was a boy living in a community occupied by someone else. He belonged to a community called Bosnians. The Bosnians were occupied by various people, but in, in the 20th century, they were occupied by the Austro-Hungarians. That's basically the empire from run out of Vienna. And he decided to take action against them. And you've got to ask yourself, become, this becomes a bit more subtle now. What were he doing when he fired that gun? Was he firing it on behalf of all Bosnians? Or was he firing it on one, behalf of one of those three communities that we mentioned in the early part of this interview? Because he belongs to the Bosnian Serb community, Gavrilo Princip. He was not a Bosnian Muslim. He was not a Bosnian Croat. Was he firing that gun in some way for some Bosnian Serb ideal or some Serbian thing? Serbia being a neighboring country? Or was his, what were his motives? And this is where he shapeshifts. This is where this figure becomes um, almost uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a ghostly figure because he has so much impact and yet the actual 100% verifiable, proven truth about Gavrilo Princip, my word, there's not an enormous amount of it. And as a result, people have allowed to, been allowed to change their views and to propagandize and to manipulate. And my view, with the research I did and the work I did and the, you know, going through the archives and checking the verifiable facts, is that he, did, he took this action because his land, Bosnia, was occupied. And he did it for all Bosnians, all of them. All three communities. He saw no big difference between the Serbs and the Muslims and Christ. They all had the common enemy. We're doing it as one. And yet, Austria, Vienna, the Vienna authorities responded and said, no, 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 he wasn't doing it just for all Bosnians. He was actually manipulated by the neighboring state, Serbia. He was run, he was an agent, run by them. He was armed by them, he was trained by them, he was motivated by them, he was told what to do by, by Serbia. So we're going to bash Serbia. And it was that fateful decision. Vienna, extrapolating and then taking this action in Sarajevo by a boy on a street corner and saying, no, it's the neighboring country that's responsible. We're going to attack them. That triggers the First World War because Serbia calls its friends in Moscow or Petersburg and the Russians come and help them. The Russians mobilize to support Serbia. If the Russians are on the move, my God, Austria-Hungary is going to need the Germans and the Germans are going to need to move, but if the Germans are going to fight the Russians, they're going to have to deal with France first, because France and Russia are in an alliance. So we're going to quickly nip across the border, take out France, and then we'll go and deal with the Russians, was the attitude of the Germans, of the Kaiser. To get to France, you're going to go through Belgium. If you go through Belgium, then that's a red, that's a tripwire for Britain. Britain gets involved. And you can see, dig, 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 all these consequences, dominoes. And I don't see any evidence, any evidence to connect Gavrilo Princip with the Serbian government. He was not acting for the Serbian government, but Vienna said he was. Why? Why would they say that? Because they were hell-bent. They were hawkish. There were hawks in that government who desperately wanted a war with Serbia to put it back in its place. And they could not imagine that it would have the knock-on effect that it did. So they then merrily went to war with Serbia, not thinking it would have the, the knock-on global conflict effect impact. And what a tragic tragic miscalculation that was yes uh, yeah wow that's that's uh, a lot right there it's a lot to take in uh so when you were walking the streets of where this actually took place what was going through your head like did you get chills were you uh you know what was what was your feeling like there well remember i'd been in sarajevo in the city 
in the 1990s. The city isn't a very big place. I've literally you know, walked on that street corner, you know, crossed the bridge it's next to a river. There's a bridge. I knew it. I knew it very, very well. What was most illuminating for me, what was most thrilling is to go there and to peel back all the history, these layers, these onion skins, one after the other. And you're left with this, you know, what do we know? What do we know about this ghostly figure on the street corner? What can we, what can we, what can we say for definite? And that was so thrilling as a writer, as an archivist, as a historian, to physically be able to map your research, your archival research, onto the geography. There's the corner. That's where he stood. It was a sunny day. We know that because the photographs have clear, clear shadows. It had been raining for three days, but it was Sunday morning, 10.30 in the morning. You can see the photographs, and it's thrilling to stack. The geography comes alive. It is so thrilling to be able to map history with actuality, to say this is the corner. And then you, you can just make out almost like sort of finding fossilized remains, like a, like a, you know, a, a, an archaeologist sort of stripping away dust. If you look very, very closely at the street corner, really closely, it's on a street corner. He assassinated him on a corner because the car takes a corner, stops, bang, bang, the two gun, the, the gunshots go off. After the assassination, after the chaos, after the war, the Austro-Hungarians put up a, um, a memorial to the Archduke, which was a big, grand affair on one end of the bridge. And on the other side of the bridge, they put up a chair. Now, that big memorial has gone. That was big and it was, a, it was too ceremonial. It, was, it smelt of Austria. So when they lost the war, they, that was got rid of. But if you look closely, the chair is still there. And it's got a Roman, a Latin message on it. And it's got a Latin message that is associated with the most important tombs in Rome. And it says, Stet we are It means, stop, traveller. You might be poetic and say, tarry a while, traveller. Tarry a while, stop. And it's encouraging you to sit and stop in your busy life, in your busy world, in your busy occupation and all the affairs that are so current. Stop and think. And what a beautiful um, place that is. And what a beautiful message because... You sit on that place, on that corner, and you just think how it all played out. There's a, you can see him in your mind's eye on the other corner. There he was with his gun, this little kid, mm -hmm. nine, with a nine millimeter in his hand, big crowd. You can see in the photographs, ladies had little big sun hats because it was a sunny morning. They were all out there, and he had his chance, and he took his shot. Two things, bang, bang, and my great uncle dies, you know. And your, your family, Scott, was impacted. And every single person listening to all of your viewers, their lives were impacted by that assassination. Every single person has their lives changed by the First World War. It's simply because it then you know, it causes the Second World War, causes the Cold War, causes yeah, and, 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 and. It's the, it's the founding moment of modern history. So sitting a while on that chair and thinking, being quiet and just pondering. What is it? What did it all mean and how it all came about? It was a pretty cool moment, to be honest. That was a that was a hair rising on the back of my neck moment. Yeah, that that definitely sounds like it. I hope to visit there one day myself and just uh, do exactly as you just said, sit on that corner, you know, see that corner for myself. Um, and uh, yeah, it just seems like a, a fascinating place with lots of history that goes back a very very long time and. Then, 
I think our viewers will definitely appreciate that. Now, uh, I do have one other question, which is, uh, well, two things, actually. First is, you know, there was the group, the Black Hand, that I believe was considered responsible. But uh, if I'm correct in your book, you specify that um, there was not necessarily a, a solid connection, like their interests did not align with the assassins. Uh, connections, like they might have wanted different things. Is that correct? Yes. Let me just, uh, just, just. Th this is complicated stuff. I mean, it's it's multi-layered, but you know, let's. I'll try and uh, convey it as best I can. Um, Sernaruka, Black Hand, was an intelligence group run out of the neighboring country Serbia. They're nationalists. They wanted to protect Serbia. They had this very, very military. They were, they were like, you know, a CIA black ops team. They were really unpleasant. I mean, they, they were, there was fighting going on. They'd fought on the southern border with what is now Macedonia a couple of times against the Ottoman. You know, they've been so these guys are real. And the question is, were they connected to Gavrilo Princip? Were they running him? Um, and to be honest, the authorities in Vienna spent lot of effort trying to connect Princip to this group and they found not a shred of evidence nothing whatsoever five years passed, ten years passed, twenty years passed, twenty-five years passed until a member long retired of the group gives an interview to an Italian historian, historian called Luigi Abatini and says yes well actually we ran him it was our guy and when you deal with spy stuff and espionage and intelligence you say things like you know, we ran a person you know, we've got no evidence to prove it, but, you know, you can't disprove it. You're always going to have that whiff of conspiracy on you. You're always going to have that little whiff out there. So there are some people out there who are going to, oh, the CIA, you know, who was on the you know, who, who, you know, There's always going to be a bit of unfinished business. My view is um, history is, is much more compliant. There will be some evidence. There will be something that shows. There will be something. And to wait 25 years to make a connection, I mean, that's just that's just ridiculous. All, all that tells me is that that person after 25 years wanted someone to buy him a drink in a bar. Need to, I'll tell you, a, I'll tell you a full story. There's nothing to connect Princip. He had no particular um, agenda with them. He had absolutely no connection to what they were doing. Um, and this group, the Black Hand, was so extreme that the Serbian government got rid of them a few years later. Their leader, a man called Apis, was executed. I mean, put to death by his own government. So that shows you how distant they were from the Serbian authorities. And yet Austria connects Princip, connects the Black Hand, or some people do connect Black Hand, and, and directly to Serbia and says, they're all, they're all tied in together. They're all so tight, we're going to wage war on Serbia. And you hold on, there's no connection. What is this going to, you know, prove it, give you some evidence. And um, as a result, it was one of the reasons that you know, Serbia was blamed by Vienna. It was one of the reasons the first domino falls. But let's be honest, as historians and researchers, when the dust settles, let us ask ourselves what can we know for certain? And the answer is we can know nothing about the Black Hand. You can have a whiff of conspiracy, you could look at the record that Luigi Albertini 25 years later finds a guy who says this, but that's all. That is all. And just because people repeat it, because it's a nice sexy story that there was a separate group, the Black Hand, and they had these funny arcane practices, they used to wear cowls, hoods on themselves, they had a blood oath if you were going to join, you had to cut your arm and give blood and, you know, have a blood blood oath 
to join the, you know, it was all dark and very, very sinister and very exciting stuff from Hollywood. But just because it was sexy and Hollywood-like doesn't make it true. And this is, again, why Princip's so interesting, because you can shapeshift Princip. You can massage him. You can massage this um, this assassin, the assassin who changed all of our lives. So many people have claimed him and shaped him. And I'm afraid the black hand, that guy 25 years later, he was just one of many. Yeah, no, that, that's that's incredible. And uh, I actually remember when I was in school, uh, <laughs> I think I remember from the textbook specifically mentioning the black hand as being responsible. And it's just fascinating to know, you know, years later I'm, I'm reading different books and I'm learning about it and it's just that there wasn't any connection or there was so little we may never know. You know, there was – it's all very fascinating and I think you're absolutely right. Do you know what? Do you know, uh, one thing that it taught me, this, this research on Princip and this research on this moment, on this individual, this single moment, was that so much has been manipulated by it. It reminds me of the famous quote attributed to Napoleon. Napoleon is understood to have said at one of his um, periods under British incarceration after he was caught by the British, he said, history, history is nothing but the lies that are no longer disputed. If you think that one through just for a second, it's amazing. It's rather convincing. Lies that are yeah. no longer disputed. You know, histories, you just sieve out what are the sexiest lies? What are the sexiest stories that no one challenges anymore? Because they're kind of either fatigued or you just, you've moved on. And Princip falls smack bang into that. People love a sexy story when really I found a teenage farmer's boy from a dirt poor background whose entire life options were limited by colonialism, boxed into a corner, which was to take militant action against the colonial power. And in doing that, he was acting just like members of the Provisional IRA in Ireland, just like members of the uh, Indian freedom fighters against the British, just like members of the Palmach in Zionist Israel in the 1930s, just like in ANC in South Africa, just like Zanu PF in Zimbabwe, and, 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 you know, it goes on and on and on. He's ex- he belongs to that scene of history. But what's interesting about this particular individual is that other, um, unlike other aspects of the scene, he has such an enormous global impact. Yes, that, that's all really amazing. And uh, thank you for speaking with me and taking the time to talk about your book again. Are there any upcoming projects that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Is there any books that you are currently working on? Well, yes, under lockdown, I'm a travel writer, so it's not a very good time to be a travel writer if you can't move. But I'm working on something in Zimbabwe, uh, which is a southern African country. And uh, it's a wonderful story of art and history coming together and politics. And it's a, the way I do the way I, I, the books I write are essentially a blend of, of exploration and travel, but with history. So you are using the journey to unravel history. So I use a journey in Bosnia to unravel Gavrilo Princip's story. And I go to the archives and I go to the places and I and unravel. I went across the Congo in Africa, which and I used that journey to unravel that history. And I did a similar thing in, in Liberia, in West Africa, a long journey. I walked for 600 kilometers through the jungle because the journey for me explains history. And I'm doing a journey in, in Zimbabwe, which is going to involve art, amazing artists, who were found in the 1940s, whose work, some work is at the, for example, the Museum of Modern Art in 
York. It's really cool stuff, but they've been forgotten. They've been caught up in the history of, of colonialism and war and tension in the 1970s and then post-independence chaos under Robert Mugabe. And I want to give them a fair voice because their art is so powerful and so impressive, and yet they've been caught up in what you might call the, you know, the malaise of history. And uh, so that, that's the next journey. That's the next project. Well, that sounds great. I look forward to reading it. And uh, thank you again, and I appreciate you spending the time to talk with me today. Okay, Scott. Nice to talk to you. I, hope it, uh, have a, I wish you and your podcast a great success. Thank you. And uh, I wish you success on your journeys as well. Just bye-bye. All right, bye.